Welcome to Anabaptist Perspectives. Over the past week and a half, we have been releasing messages from the 18th Annual Men's Seminar in Hartwell, Georgia, which happened earlier this year. The first three messages that we released were by Stephen Brubaker, but today we begin a series of three messages that Pete Witt presented at that same conference. The final two messages in this series are called The Impact That Fathers Have on Their Child's Desire to Learn and The Eternal Value of Christian Education, but today we will begin the series with his message titled, Why Some Children Learn Differently. A little bit about my wife and I and our work. We work with schools, like was mentioned, we're uh, involved with Christian Light Education. They give us the title of a school rep. We're in and out of schools just to see what's going on. Is there anything we can help with? Uh, and we somewhat specialize in dealing with dyslexia and children that, that struggle with learning because I'm dyslexic myself. My school years weren't really exactly what you would call some of the brightest years in my life. It was a window of time that we all passed through that's called school years. And there's quite a bit that goes on in that window. And we often carry with us the rest of our life some things that happened in that window. So my wife and I, we have a, a special interest it was always my special interest to see the child that learned differently. We call them struggler. And I considered myself a struggler. There's a lot of emotions that goes along with struggling. And uh, we'll talk about some of those and the effects of that emotional baggage that we began to carry about ourselves. But our title of why do some children learn differently? Well, that's a question. And to answer that question, we're going we're gonna to say it's because God loves variety. Children learn differently because they don't have all of the same processing equipment. God has given us different equipment to work with. And we're going to be mentioning a lot about dyslexia because dyslexia is the most common of all learning struggles. If we would put all of the learning struggles that faces the academic world into a pile, 85% of it would be represented by dyslexia. And sometimes we think of dyslexia as being, uh, and probably all of you came with your, what your idea of dyslexia would be. But I'm not going to say it's all wrong, but I'd almost be willing to say a lot of it is, because mine used to be. What is it really all about? What is the difference in learning all about? Out here in the parking lot, we have a lot of different vehicles out there by a lot of different makes. And under the hood of each one of those vehicles is some differences. The exterior, oh, there's wheels, there's a body, there's a frame, there's a suspension, there's an engine. And 
The main job is to go from point A to point B. But under the hood, it's a different story. Those wiring harnesses don't just swap from vehicle to vehicle because they're different. You know, there's foreign makes out there, there's American makes out there, and there's probably even some poor soul that came in a Ford this morning. So, uh, that's okay. When we think of the differences in life, people are very similar to that. Each one of us are carrying with us the genetic package that our parents have handed us. We had no choosing. It just came free of charge with all of its specialties. When I was a little fellow struggling, children are quite blind to the struggles of others sometimes, and they're very, very forgiving. But one thing that we do notice is that we're different. And I can remember so well in school, and I'll be relating to some of my own experiences today, but I can remember so well in school being fairly young and realizing that I can't work as fast as other children can. And the little fellow next to me had his finger way down the page after the assignment was given out, and he's, you know, moving along there, and I'm still up here trying to digest this first sentence here, and it I have to go over it a couple of times, and I look over there and I think, oh, how can he do that? How can he do that? And then I wonder, why can't I do that? And while I'm still wondering and staring and thinking, he turns the page, and that just kind of blows me away. I'm still not getting anything done. I'm so easily distracted by what is hard. And there's not a one of us in here that does hard things because we love them. We enjoy them. It's something I just look so forward to getting up and doing in the morning is something hard. No, we learn to avoid those things or either to deal with them. And if school and if learning is difficult, and we, if, if we would liken it to there's a wheel here to turn, we'll, we'll say an old-fashioned coffee grinder. Probably most of you have seen those in an antique store or something. Some of you may even be familiar with them. But you know, you put the coffee in the top, and you set the grind that you want, and you begin to grind that thing, and when you get the speed up, that's the reason it has that big wheel on there, the centrifugal force just keeps her rolling, and you just pour the coffee in, and the fresh aroma, you know, all that. Well, for some children, it's not grinding coffee, it's like grinding gravel to face what's going to happen that day in the classroom. And... That struggle is going to be hard, and it's hard every day. Discouragement comes easily. Distractions come very easy. So, what's going on? That's the question we ask sometimes. What's going on? Most of the time, as a teacher, we begin to ask that fairly early on. What's wrong? And see... 
I'll just tell you right, right to start with, in the field of education, we have not done well in dealing with the variations God sends to our classrooms. We have not done well with that because we have a curriculum and those are the tools that we're going to use to prepare these children for these classes and instruct them and give them their knowledge. We're going to use this curriculum for all of them. But yet, there may be some here that learn differently. And you know, it's okay to be different. There's not a thing in the world wrong with it. It is perfectly fine to be different. But we don't know what to do with it sometimes. And as these children realize that they're different, just to be different is almost always recognized as something being wrong. Something's broken. And often these children think of themselves as broken. We get hard on ourselves. If I would only try harder, if I could pay attention better. And the teacher usually agrees with us. If we could just stick with it. Why can't I stick, stick right down on it like, you know, just stay there? But soon my mind drifts away. What's going on here? Well, with the difference in brain designs, and these, I'm going to be talking about a, a different brain design that is actually a physical difference. You've got a right hand and you've got a left hand. They're similar to each other, but they're different. One's a right hand and one's a left hand. There are actually physical brain differences that we get from the genetic package that's handed to us. And when we think of dyslexia, which is the, uh, the struggle to process sound, is really what that boils down to, processing sound. And to, to process those sounds and connect them to the symbols that represent those sounds. Most children don't give a whole lot of indication that this struggle or processing issue is going on before their school years. As a matter of fact, parents have a tendency to, to see little Johnny on the floor with all the things he can create and build with a little bit of anything, and we just are just convinced this is one of the brightest ch children there ever was. And, and, you know, of course, being mine helps that too. But we're sure that this is just, I'm just, when he goes to school, what's going to happen here? He's really going to show the teacher something. But instead, there begins to be a little glitch that forms. And the teacher says there's a little something going on here. And as they're learning their sounds and going through their phonics program, when they come to the where it should be kind of winding down and moving into the reading mode, there seems to be a real struggle right there. Children are asked to do something so far as sound and communication in 
school that they aren't asked to do outside of school. They're asked to not just respond and express thought, they're asked to be able to transform it into symbols, letters, and build words to express that thought and put it together down on paper. And we're talking about one of the most difficult things for a dyslexic to do is to get their thoughts on paper. So, if this is genetically passed on, then that means it, it has to be present in the generation before. You're dead right. If a child is struggling phonetically, and that's your struggle with sounds and words, spelling, reading, that phonetic struggle is present in mom or dad. It does not jump generations. It may be so mild that it's barely detectable, but it is there. It will be right there every time. My wife and I, we, we work with a lot of this across the whole country. And without fail, it's there. We might have to dig a little bit, be kind of nosy to find out what's going on, but it helps us to be able to zero in on the struggle of this child. If we cannot find it present in the parents, then it is necessary to screen that child. And that's something that we, my wife and I, we took a graduate level course on brain processing and dyslexia so that we could do that properly. If we, if we cannot find it genetically present, then it's going to be necessary to screen that child to find out what is going on here. Now, school board, I don't know where you are in here. I know a few because some of you represent the schools we, we visit. But if you have a child that's struggling and they're not genetically, we can't point to where this struggle came from, it would be necessary to screen this child because a screen does not lie. It shows exactly the truth of the matter of how a person phonetically processes. And we have screened children that were struggling quite significantly and looked their work looked like it just screamed of struggle and dyslexia. But when we put them through a screen, we found out their processing equipment was perfectly fine. They were trying to work without their tools, just like a dyslexic does. And why didn't they have their tools? Well, at that point, it points back to the first grade experience and the first grade teacher. This has happened several times in different schools. If a child is not given their phonetic tools properly in their first grade experience, you can create the very same situation that a child that cannot get them through dyslexia or some other issue, you can create that same thing. All they need is to go back then and get their tools, and unfortunately, they're one year down the road that we've got to back up and pedal backwards and do some fixing here. 
But the reason for that is because there, they never got their tools. So this is something for us all to stand on our toes and be carefully watching in that first grade experience is that those teachers, that what's going on in that room is what needs to go on in that room, that that foundation is being laid properly. When we think of children that got the foundation properly, but how do they process this? They process it with the equipment that God gave them. Now, we can't see this difference. This is what's deceptive to us. You can't look at a child that looks normal, and over and over again, we hear the same statement. Teachers tell us, they're very smart. Well, you betcha they're smart. That's not what we're here to find out. We're here to find out why they phonetically struggle. But that is one of the problems right there that school represents to us. Now, I don't want to be too hard on school. I taught for many, many years. But we often use the measuring stick of academic accomplishment to measure a child's intelligence, and that is so wrong. Because their true intelligence will be measured in their performance in life and how they put to work the tools that they have. Those are the measurements we can look at, not their academic performance. You may be measuring a person by the very hardest thing that they have to face. If Let's just say that I am a phonics teacher this morning, and I have a phonics class here. I have five first graders, and I'm going to teach them their phonics their letters, their sounds, how these sounds work together, how we build words and we put words together to build thought in phrases. So I'm teaching phonics. And if you know much about a phonics program, it moves quite briskly, almost a letter a day. So I'm passing out these phonetic tools to these children that they're going to use to process sound and word structure all of their life. I'm laying that foundation now. So here we go. I'm passing these tools out daily. And we're building this phonetic foundation. And I'm giving it to all five of them, the same material at the same time. They're all looking at me. Everybody's paying attention. But what I don't realize is that one out of those five, and that's how common dyslexia is the world over, is one out of five people are dyslexic. So as I'm, as I'm passing these tools out, I can't see that the processors in, in action up here. Some of these children, four of them will say, are able to grasp pretty well everything that I'm throwing at them. And they grab those tools and they store them away in their tool chest and they know exactly where they are for future use. Like the mechanic that has his tool chest and knows his tools well. But there's one there that's, that's desperately trying has no idea why he can't and doesn't even know that he's different yet. 
He just knows that he can't remember all of these sounds and all of the letters and how all of this works. It's confusing. And when we come out of the other end of this phonics program, you've got four children with a tool chest full and you've got one with a handful. But they all are going to sit down and go to work. And as these children sit down and go to work with the tools they have, we, in the first couple of grades of school, we walk closely most of the time beside children. They barely get a chance to make a mistake and we're correcting them. And that's the way it should be. We're showing them and we're instructing them. We walk right with them. But by the third grade, definitely, if not before, is where that, that stage right there is where most teachers have come to me over the years and said, Mr. Whit, I've got a student, and this is usually about the first month in school. I've got a student here that's in the third grade. And I'm not sure how they got here. It doesn't look like they can hardly read. It looks like they struggle tremendously. And they came through the first two grades. But their greatest struggle is phonetic processing. What is going on? Well, I can tell you a lot of what goes on there is it's at the third grade point that most curriculums change quite a bit. They go from having a lot of pictures and a lot of graphics to build their written material around. The graphics have gotten smaller and less, and the multisyllable words have gotten larger and more common. And these children are trying to process, and what good does that picture do? That picture does a lot of good. If you've never experienced struggling in school and learning differently, you probably glanced at the pictures and they were interesting and you liked to look at them, but you didn't depend on them. Some of us depend on the picture. When we turn the page, it's the first thing we look at. We study the picture. We study it and we look at what's going on. As we're reading, we're redoing this picture in our mind. And as actually a child that struggles to read is multiprocessing. They're not only reading the words... But to help them, see, we search for all kinds of ways to make this thing work. To help them, they're thinking about what's going on here. They're digesting the intent. And that's the very reason, because of the struggle, and as hard as it is to read, it's much easier to think and imagine and make work. If a teacher is watching over their shoulder or a parent or listening to a child read and they notice that they're not saying all the words that are there. They're putting in words that aren't there. The bunny that, according to the book, ran down the lane just turned into a rabbit. And the cat now is a kitty. 
the brain is taking that in, but it's in such a scramble and a jumble. And it's so hard to process that that's exactly what's happening, that multiprocessing. We're making it work and we're seeing that picture. We're making the story say what we think it wants to say. And we're helping it out. It's confusing to everybody. It'd be a whole lot easier if you just say the words that are on the page. It doesn't work like that. The equipment that's up here doesn't process like that. These children, one of the things that they need more than anything else is understanding. And they need for, some, for someone to believe in them. Because you can't understand, you probably, if you've never experienced it, you can't hardly imagine what a lonely place it is to be to be by yourself and not understand why you're there in the schoolroom. And teachers, well-intended teachers, bless their hearts, they're doing the best they can. They've never understood what it is. But they make just small remarks that maybe are supposed to be some type of encouragement. You know, is this as far as you are? Can't you work any faster than that? Just small remarks, but darts in the heart. I want to work faster. I want to be where everybody else is, and I don't know why I can't. I have no idea. It's the difference in the equipment. The difference in the package that I inherited. As my wife and I, as we got deeper and deeper in this study and work, and worked with more and more children and people. We worked with adults as well. We saw the variety out there. And I thought about my dad. Dad, I just always knew his dad. But when I started unraveling my background for the first time, I thought about mom. Always, if she's sitting down, she's got a book. Uh, she's reading, she's, she's working at things, she's, she doesn't, doesn't struggle. Dad, I can, I can remember him with books, but different kinds of books. And Dad has a PhD in vocational education. He's a man that works with his hands. That was his interest, was vocational education. And I went to talk to Dad one day as I, was, as I was getting into this. And deeper and deeper, I said, Dad, from what we're learning, what I've dealt with, if it, if it is what they say it is, if it's dyslexia, uh, it came to me genetically. He just smiled. He said, son, I'm dyslexic. I thought, Dad, you got, I mean, here we are. We had never had this discussion, never had a need to. But you know, it's okay. That didn't lower Dad in my eyes. It kind of put us on the same level. And that's, that's where all children need to be 
is on a level of acceptance that someone believes in them and accepts them just like they are. That's the very reason that dyslexics get along very well with animal relationships. That's a known fact. Animals don't care whether we can read or spell. They love us for who we are. And children experience that relationship. They can, they can experience that being together without hesitation, without comparison. <clears throat> and children need to experience that too. Somehow they need to experience being accepted and what their interests are and what their capabilities are, are real accomplishments. Here a while back, we were hosted in a home for the evening meal before a speaking engagement, and one of the little boys there was a particular interest of why we were there in that community to uh, some school issues, but to screen this little fellow. He said, you want to see my truck? He was probably about in the second grade. I said, sure. So he goes in the bedroom, and I heard him crank that thing up before he ever got it out there. All kinds of sound effects. And here he comes out of the bedroom. <clears throat> Boy, he's driving this thing across the floor there. And I looked twice. This thing was totally built out of Legos. So it was a customized rig from one end to the other. And sitting on that flatbed, which had a winch, to pull it up there was a nice tractor built out of Legos. And this truck had a beaver tail on it. And he pulled that thing up there and he stopped and he backed the tractor down off of it and with more sound effects. And I thought, little boy, you have an imagination that is far and wide. Academically, from what I'm understanding, the teachers tell me, you're, you, you really struggle. But this was a lot of intelligence. And that intelligence will be applied in other areas as well. Why do they learn differently? It's because of the package they have to learn with. And it's okay to be different. But the weight of being different is where we play into it, of helping them accept and deal with being different. I've worked with quite a few children that carry a lot of heavy emotional baggage about themselves, and they're feeling different. I remember that so well, feeling that I'm different, and I'm dumb, I'm stupid. I'm just not as smart as other people. And hiding it at all expense. We get really good at hiding it. We get really good at, at watching two steps in front of my nose to avoid issues that'll keep me out of a corner and keep me from being exposed. 
always watching out for that, never wanting to be exposed. Keeping these things out of sight. And so often there are parents that have experienced this same type of thing. And these things, when they left that window of time called school years, they stuffed these struggles under the bed and behind the couch and they never wanted to see them again. I remember the day I walked out of high school. I had no intentions of ever darkening the doorway of a school again. God had other plans. And then we began to see some of these things in the next generation. And it scares us pretty bad, frightens us, because what I dealt with may be here again in my own children. And I don't want them to face what I faced and still face. Over 22 years in the, in the school, and I never once walked to a chalkboard and just wrote sentences up there and said, okay, y'all, we're going to diagram these sentences. They'd have probably said, Mr. Whit, we need to spell the words right first. I would have never done it. I always had them written on my hand or a little scrap of paper because I didn't want them to know that I can't hardly spell or I struggled so hard to spell. Choosing a book to read that is something that I can actually relax with. It's going to be a book way under my age level of reading. Because of the word processing. Of the level of the, of the uh, words that are in there. Sometimes... What compounds these, this baggage and makes it heavier yet for children to carry. And we parents can become involved in it uh, as well. Teachers can be very frustrated by it. But I have one of the first things I used to always attempt to do when a child, when I see a child that's struggling, is to, is to let them know it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. There's nothing wrong here. I'm going to be right here with you. We're going to make it work. You could almost feel the baggage easing down. And sometimes the performance would even rise a little bit just from being able to set some package, baggage down. But then there's another side of this thing. It's a, it's a, is something that often the class is not really known about in the classroom. But the child knows that's personal fears and things like bedwetting. People that don't understand that, and I've heard it just in the last week, talking about that issue. Punishing the child for bedwetting. Punishing the child for being too lazy to get up and go to the restroom. You're talking about compounding misery now. Bedwetting is a result of fears. And fears that, and the body's tensions and stresses that we can't even lay down and get our minds to release. 
when we go to sleep. Ask someone that has ever struggled with that if you just, I mean, what's going on? Do you just not want to get up? Absolutely. You're on the wrong trail there. The humiliation, the shame, especially the older you get. It just gets compounded when there's no trust. Nobody understands, and the child doesn't for sure. And they carry that package yet to school with them. That package gets heavy. The baggage gets heavy. Trying to understand why am I like I am. If we can just come to grips with the fact that it's okay to be different. God didn't create us all the same. He didn't want us all the same. And in that, we don't learn all the same. Let's step away from children just a moment and look at adults. We were hosted uh, <clears throat> northern Pennsylvania. We were there on a speaking assignment. And it wasn't really about dyslexia. It was on other issues. And we were hosted by a couple that uh, after we were there, after the evening meal, we were sitting there. And they were questioning, you know, what do y'all do? What is... What all do you get involved in? And we were, we were explaining, you know, especially the, the dealing with dyslexia and things like that. And as soon as we got to that point, we barely had gotten into the subject. I saw this lady glance at her husband. So we went on discussing, you know, dyslexia, what it looks like. And she was kind of gently probing questions out of us. And she kept glancing at her husband. To the point that I was beginning to wonder if something's, if I should look over there too and see what's fixing to happen. <laughs> and finally, at a pause in the conversation, she said, she looked at her husband and said, Would you like to tell them about yourself? And I, I didn't know where, I don't have a counseling service, I didn't know where this is fixing to go. But he did. He did. He said, yes, he said, you're describing me. He said that I've never been able to really learn how to read. He said that I went through the third grade three times and they finally put me out of school. Because they just didn't know what to do with me. So I did the best I could do. Now... The best he could do was quite an understatement. This man owned an irrigation company, and he did most of the electronics and the wiring. Intricate stuff. He also owned an equipment company. He said when we, they shipped us new equipment, came in by freight, it always comes in pieces and parts and things like that, he said with an instruction manual. He said, I couldn't read the manual. My sons could. They would read the manual and I would tell them how to put it together. That's the way we put equipment together. 
He said, in school days, I, I would be the, uh, through for the day. I'm sitting in the living room. My wife and children are out at the table uh, doing schoolwork, homework, you know. He said, and I, I would sit in there and cry. Because I would love to be out there at the table helping them with their homework. But I couldn't do it. And I didn't know why. I just know it doesn't work. And these stories, we've, we've seen in our work, we have seen the whole spectrum of dealing with people that struggle to read and spell. Some try to hide from it. They'll even challenge me. I had one man that came up to me in Pennsylvania. He said, he said, I can read real well. He said, don't spell very good, but I can read real well. And I, and I was talking to him about his reading and how it go, you know, particulars of it. And I asked him, do you read out, do you enjoy reading out loud? Oh, no. Don't ever want to read, I mean, I don't like to read out loud at all. Okay, well, that told me, you know, we're very forgiving of ourselves as long as we stay within the realms of our own cranium. His wife walked up there and I asked her, I said, do you ever hear him read? She said, yes, I do. I said, does he pronounce all the words? Oh, no. And he kind of looked at her like, why'd you have to say that, you know? <laughs> I mean, the truth of the matter was, he could read in his style. And we are good at developing our own styles and patterns and crutches and things to help us through life. Oh, we have a, we have a, whole arsenal of things to survive with. That's because you're dyslexic. That child that learns slow is very bright. And they learn other ways to do things. I had a little boy one time that he was in 7th or 8th grade. When I got him, uh, the first time I was teaching 3rd and 4th grade. And that, those were the years I enjoyed the most. But that... That little fellow, he, he struggled really hard with, with his schoolwork. But now we're going to fast forward to the eighth grade and we're in algebra class. And I have an algebra problem on the board. And we're going to work this thing together. It was one with a few kinks and twists in it. So we start through this thing and I want them to think through it. Because if they can learn to understand how these things work by the steps then they can turn and apply that knowledge to other algebra problems. But he raised his hand. He said, Mr. Whit, the answer for that problem is so-and-so. We were a long ways from getting that problem worked out. I said, Titus, how did you come up with that? And I knew he was right because I had the key. How did you know that? He said, there's another way to do it other than what you're doing, Mr. Whit. <laughs> And he did it, he thought differently. And that's exactly what goes on with these children and these people. They think outside the box. They're not afraid to go outside the box to think. To illustrate that, we'll just, you know what the, the card game you know is. It's 
uh, has numbers and colors on the cards used uh, to play this game. If I would have a, a non-dyslexic person standing here and a dyslexic person standing here, and I would have two stacks of cards that are just all mixed up, I would hand this non-dyslexic person a stack and I would say, put those in order. I don't care what the order is, something that you're okay with, something that you feel good about, put them in order. I come over here and I give this dyslexic person the same thing, tell them exactly the same thing, whatever you're okay with, and I leave them to their work. Uh, this one starts, you can tell they're thinking, and they start to lay down cards. This one, he's still standing there turning that stack around, staring at it. I come over here and I see that this one has laid these cards out in a very logical manner. And a very good design. I come back over here and this one finally got tired of staring at the stack and he pitched it down on the table. Boom! And he did scrape it into a smaller pile. I asked this one, can you produce a green five? With their logical design, quite quickly they produce a green five. I come over here and I say, can you produce for me a green five? Well, the cards start to flip, flop, and fly. And if he can still remember what he's looking for, he might find me a green five. Now, if I would ask you, which one needs some help, you would say this one right here. But I'll tell you, it's out of this pile right here that our inventors, our architects, our brain surgeons, our cardiovascular surgeons that come up with procedures that are far beyond the imaginations of man, they come out of this pile right here over and over and over again. Men that could hardly even pass the entrance exam to get into college. Once they got through the door, they could prove what they knew outside the realms of the written word. These people, and I'm going to compare a little more here, and I'm not trying to lift one up or the other, or put anybody down. But these people aren't comfortable outside the box. That's their security. Their logical thinking and the written word that can, that can help them understand that. That's their security. These people, and, and they don't like to venture outside the box because out there you've got to process things on your own you know you can't depend on the written word these people over here they don't mind being outside the box they've never been inside the box they don't even understand what it's all about that's the reason being out there on their own and processing information they don't mind a bit they'll take used known information and apply it over and over again in different situations in life. But you know what? We desperately need both of these 
God didn't make a mistake in anywhere. Some children learning differently, it's okay. We need these logical thinkers to take these out-of-the-box creations and inventions and put them into a logical form that we can use them. But we haven't done well in working with these varieties and encouraging both of them in a way that they feel like I'm a worthwhile part of God's creation. We need to work on removing the stigma of negative brokenness. Suppose there were no school years. Suppose school wasn't there, the institution wasn't established. Now, I know a little boy that would have whooped and whistled and carried on if that had happened in his day. But the reality of that situation is we would all be on our own to learn by some means the lessons of life and what gather together the tools that we need. But it wouldn't have changed the fact of who we are and our different packages of learning but it wouldn't have exposed them either. That's one thing that goes on in those school years is we do a lot of comparing. There's a lot of comparison that goes on and a lot of analyzing. But if we're ready to meet the needs of every student that walks before us, and as parents, we accept them because, uh, hello, where did this apple fall from? Right out of the tree. So there's no need in becoming uh, fearful and, and wondering what's going on when we see some of these things going on in our children. Children that learn differently. They need a different approach. Some children see a lot, and that's, again, you're dyslexic, they see a, a lot of pictures in their mind. They depend on those pictures. When they're reading, they're, they're drawing, they're, they're painting scenes, and they depend on those. Someone that can read fluently and smoothly, they paint with nice strokes. And the picture comes together nicely for them. So nicely that they don't even have to depend on the picture, but so well because through the structure of the written word, they're getting the thought. But for the one that depends on the picture and depends on painting that picture out of the, out of the intent of the written word, can you imagine what that picture looks like? And one out of five people being like that? And we see a group here this morning, you know, there's, there's a fair number of us. One out of five? Those are cold, hard statistics. You can look around and do the math. Now, I don't know how well you know each other, so I ask you not to get to pointing at each other. But, <laughs> but that's very, very real. And what's out there? Another illustration that may help you. Now we're going to talk about adults here. 
uh, may help you understand. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe it'll help you understand your children. Or maybe you're involved in education. Let's say that you go to Walmart and you want, would like to purchase a bookcase. And you find one that you want on display. You tell the sales clerk, I'd like to have one like that. He says, sure, I'll get you one. I'll be right back. Well, he comes out and yours is in a nice flat box. It doesn't look like that one. It's supposed to when you get through with it, though. So you take it home and you cut the box open and we pour everything out here on the floor. And the last thing that falls out is the instructions. Oh, we'll save those. I'll use them to start a fire with. And I'll put this thing together three times wrong before I get it right. But when I'm through with it, I totally understand how this type of construction works. How these cam locks work. And how all of it goes together. And I'll use that knowledge again. But I had to understand it. I had to completely figure it out. Then you take the, the non-dyslexic person. They went and did the same thing. They bought them a, a shelf. They came home with it. They cut it open when they dumped it out. The last thing that fell out was the instructions and they grabbed them. And they read the instructions and they put it together right the first time. Now you could bring the dyslexic fellow another one similar to it. And he'll do the same thing with the instructions. But he'll use his previous knowledge to apply it to this one. But for the one that has to have those instructions, that's what he depends on. If you bring him another one, you better bring him the instructions with it. He's going to be lost without them. That's the way he thinks. That's the way his life is structured. It's just different. There's nothing wrong with either one of them. It's just different. And it's okay to be different. But there's one thing that all children need to under we need to understand about children and help them to arrive at a point of success and accomplishment in their life. It is a security to be there. It means that I am okay. When they feel like they can succeed and they can accomplish things, and others believe in me. I remember so well when I was, when we were uh, studying the different learning situations, we were in a seminar on dyslexia. And the instructor there, the speaker, when she came to the dyslexia and describing it and talking about it, and all, I punched my wife. I said, that's me. That's me. I had never known what my issue was. All I knew is it was just as real as it could be, but what it was called, I didn't know. This thing has a handle. I'm dyslexic. You know, and I felt better just to have a handle on this thing. It made me feel like I know what I am. But it still doesn't change who I am 
It's emotionally what I accept myself to be and that I'm not broken. And we went on then to to study quite a bit about it, and you've got other learning issues out there. You've got ADD, ADHD, very similar to each other. One of them has hyperactivity in it. The other one doesn't. Uh, I really don't get too deep into those areas because my training is not specialized in those. We do work especially with dyslexia. But there's an interesting thing. Those are also genetic packages. Those are going to be present in the former generation. I can remember counseling some parents. <clears throat> and see, parents can live with children all their lives and be just as lost as anybody else if they don't understand it's okay to be different. This is just different. It's not anything wrong. But we were counseling some parents there about a little their son that we had screened their son. And as we were screening their son, uh, going through a screen, you, you're paying a lot of attention to this child. And it was definitely some ADD tendencies here. I mean, ADHD. I was actually working about as hard to keep his attention in the screen as I was to give the screen. And... I was, as I was discussing this with the parents, I told them this. I told them that there's some strong ADHD tendencies here. And I, I wanted to come around to the point that this is also an inherited genetic issue to help you understand what's going on. Because, see, parents are at a loss. Where did he catch it? How did he get it? Well, he rightfully got it. Uh, when did it happen? See, they've got these questions too. But I, when I was, while we were talking, I had noticed that his wife didn't spend more than two minutes at a time with me in any window of attention. She was this way and that way and over there and down here and back there and under the table and over there and back over there. And I, I thought maybe they don't, maybe they aren't understanding what the attention deficit issue is, because if you mix that with dyslexia, which is not uncommon, you have a more challenging issue to work with. And I said, you know, ADHD is uh, is an attention issue that that staying focused and and taking everything that's in that little focused window, being able to take that in. Well, if, that, if that's going to be tangled up in processing issues yet, you're going to compound the ability to get it in. But this focus thing, and uh, I said, do, do either one of you, can you relate to that? I didn't really need to ask the question, but I wanted them to be able to relate to it. And he went, And she still, I don't know, maybe she, it was good she wasn't on board right then, but she wasn't on board right then either. But we finally, you know, I wanted to make sure you understand entirely what's going on with this little boy, because he's a very intelligent little boy. 
It's just that he's, he's got some things he's going to have to deal with. And if we'll walk with him and help him understand it, and we believe in him and work with him, don't just try to patch it up and act like it's not there. Don't go there. That's like the color of his hair, the color of his eyes. They're never going to change. When some children learn differently, it's because, largely because, their processing is different. Now that processing can be changed from damage of chemicals like alcohol, drugs. They can do some of the same types of damage and delaying of processing. As a matter of fact, we've, they told us in our course, our professor told us that if you always find out if you're dealing with a child that has been involved in prenatal alcohol or drugs or things of that nature because they cannot give a predictable results. When, remediating a, from, when we're remediating dyslexia, real, naturally, passed on dyslexia, genetically transferred, that is a different issue to deal with. The other is actually brain damage. And brain damage does not respond to remediation quite the same way. So, as we, as we think of the variety that God sends to us and our children, like was mentioned this morning already, even though they can be in the same family, there will be variations, almost always. And some of us, I see a, a quite an age variety in here. Uh, some of us can relate to that. Some of us are like that old Tom Turkey that has seen quite a few eggs in the nest already. And then there's a number of little Jakes in here too that are hidden down that way. Be prepared for that. Don't be startled by it. God loves variety. And don't be caught in the comparison game. Because they just may learn differently in all of life. The child that doesn't care for the story, he'd rather go outside. When I grew up, I grew up with television in our home. But I didn't care for it that much. Sports never rang, pulled my chain or rang my bell. I would much rather go build something. Put something together. As a matter of fact, when I was in school, too often I was already working on this afternoon's project when I should be doing my language arts or my English. I enjoy water. have loved it all my life. I enjoy swimming and diving. And I can remember when I read a little article one time of how these pearl divers, these Polynesian pearl divers, could dive and stay underwater for quite a length of time without any scuba gear. Because they start young, building a lung capacity. And it's actually exercised and built in these young boys to where they reach those teen years and older, they've got a lung capacity that they can dive down and stay underwater. All they need is a face mask. 
And that was what I had as a little boy, was a face mask and a snorkel. We actually lived on the beach and the water lapped on the back edge of our backyard. So I, I was in it every chance I got. Being in school years, that just carried on my interest in it. And I can remember, you know, you're sitting there, you're in language arts class and you're watching the clock and you're, and you're holding your breath. You know, your, your mind's somewhere else. You're getting ready for this pearl dive. And you can feel that lung capacity and that slow sequence of release as you're going down. Just before I picked up that clam, my teacher said, Peter! And scared me into the middle of next week. <laughs> She'd been watching this little fella. He's about the shade of a good bright red beet and he's getting kind of glassy-eyed. She had no idea what was going on. Unfortunately, in my, my English, I didn't either. <laughs> but I knew that that was something I'm good at, and my mind goes there. That's something that I loved, and I could, I, it could be a part of me. We can help children love school and learning if they can feel that we understand them, we believe in them, and they can taste success. Everyone needs to experience success and accomplishment. And if we can all accept the fact, with the variety that we have, God has made no mistakes. It's okay to be different. God bless you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Anabaptist Perspectives. For more information, you can go to our website at anabaptistperspectives.org, where we have a blog, and this material is also available in video form on YouTube and Facebook, both under the name Anabaptist Perspectives. This podcast is also available on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Anchor. We would love to hear your feedback, so if you have any thoughts on something that was shared on this show, please let us know. Again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to Anabaptist Perspectives. Your listening and sharing this with friends helps more people find our episodes. A special thanks to all of you who support Anabaptist Perspectives financially. We are here because of you. If you haven't had the chance to give yet this year, would you consider making a year-end donation? You can donate on our website or by check. Thank you so much for listening and supporting Anabaptist Perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We invite you to join our monthly partner program. Monthly partners are key to the financial sustainability of Anabaptist Perspectives. Partners also gain access to bonus content, including our exclusive podcast where we respond to audience questions and comments. Sign up at anabaptistperspectives.org.